Thanks for checking out this week's podcast from Center Street Church. We pray it blesses, encourages, and inspires you. So you've heard this before, happy Resurrection Weekend, everyone. You know, I know everyone calls it Easter these days, but I, you know, Easter is really for people who are into uh, uh, chocolate bunnies and egg hunts. We're here to celebrate the resurrection of our Lord, amen? Amen. Yes, indeed. And uh, I just want to just emphasize, uh, there's still more baptisms to come, so, you know, really want to encourage you to hang around and, and hear all these baptisms and continue to join us in worship. Anyways, today I want to talk to you about the amazing grace of God. Grace is one of the central truths of the Christian faith. It's one of the gifts that God, that Good Friday and the, um, of Good Friday and the Resurrection Sunday. Uh, Dr. C.S. Lewis, former professor um, at Oxford and also Cambridge University, he once said that the greatest and most unique gift that Christ came to give us is grace. The Buddhist Eightfold Path, the Hindu Doctrine of Karma, the Jewish Covenant, the Muslim Code of Law, each of these requires one to earn the approval of God. Only Christianity makes God's love unconditional. So what is the grace of God all about? Well, in Matthew 20, Jesus told a story, it's a parable actually, um, to help us to understand what God's grace is all about. It's a story about a man who owned a large vineyard, a story that likely would have taken place during the grape harvest season in September in ancient Israel. The landowner had a vineyard full of grapes that needed to be harvested quickly before the rainy season came. And so early one morning, uh, he went to the town market where um, you really, you would go to not only purchase food and all kinds of supplies, but it was also a place where people gathered. A place where you could also find, uh, find people who wanted to be hired uh, to work for the day. Well, the landowner arrived at about 5.30 in the morning and hired all those who were there looking for work. And he asked them how much they would like to be paid uh, for a full day's work, and they agreed on the going rate of that day, which was a denarius. The landowner said, you give me a full day's work, and I'm going to give you a full day's pay. And they were all happy with the arrangement, and they began working in the vineyard at 6 a.m. in the morning. Well, the landowner knew that it was going to, if he was going to get his harvest in quickly, uh, he needed more workers. And so every three hours or so, at 9 a.m., also at noon, at 3 p.m. in the afternoon, he hired workers uh, to help gather the harvest. He even hired a few workers about an hour before quitting time. And in each case, he promised to pay them a fair wage for uh, their work uh, for him that day. Now, Levitical law stated you had to give a worker his pay at the end of every day because at that time there wasn't um, there weren't banks as we're used to now where you could have a savings account and so people needed to buy food and they needed to buy supplies for their family on a daily basis and so they needed to be paid on a daily basis which is what the owner did only he did it in a highly unusual way Instead of paying those who had worked the longest first, 
He began paying those who had started work an hour before quitting time. And to everyone's shock, he paid those who had only worked one hour a full day's pay, a denarius. Those who had worked three hours, six hours, and nine hours, he also paid them a full day's wage, a denarius. And then he came to those who had worked the full shift of 12 hours. And verse 10 tells us how they reacted. And so when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. Well, the landowner was um, troubled by their response, and so he asked them, before you began work this morning, didn't we agree that you would work the entire day for a denarius? And they mumbled, well, yes. The truth is, you got exactly what we agreed upon. You're not upset that you got less than you deserve. You're upset because the other workers got more than they deserved. And you know what, said the landowner? You're absolutely right. They did get more than they deserved. I chose to be gracious to them. But remember, folks, it's my vineyard and it's my money. And if I want to be generous with those who don't deserve it, that's my prerogative. I did you no injustice. I treated you fairly. I paid you exactly what we agreed upon. I simply chose to be exceedingly generous to these other folks. Now this parable teaches us several things about the grace of God. First of all, God's grace is a gift. You probably noticed that Jesus' story makes no economic sense. That was his intent. Grace is not about counting. It's not about finishing first or last. It's not about something we work to achieve. It's not about trying to earn God's favor by being good. That's really what religion is. You do good and God will reward you. You do bad and God will punish you. That's religion in a nutshell. But that is not the way of Christ. The way of Christ is grace. And grace is a gift that you don't deserve. Through the, this parable, Jesus is saying that God dispenses gifts, not wages for hard work, as it were. None of us gets to heaven on the basis of our attempts to be good. For none of us comes even close to satisfying God's standard of righteousness. Our eternal destination and our relationship with Him is not based upon what we do for Him. No, it is based upon what He has already done for us by His grace on the cross of Calvary. And all we can do is humble ourselves and accept His grace and live in the fullness of His grace. Like any loving parent or a loving spouse, God doesn't want your performance. He wants you. He wants your affection. He wants your friendship. That's the first truth we see taught here. God's grace is a gift. 
The second truth this parable teaches us is God's grace may seem unfair. Let me ask you, have you ever struggled extending grace to a business partner who defrauded you? To a fellow employee who for their own benefit threw you under the bus? To a parent who deserted you or just plain neglected you? Even if these people pay for their crime or ask forgiveness for their wrongdoing, isn't it true that we often kind of keep them in a prison of our own making because we find it really difficult to extend grace to them? And one of the reasons for that is that in large part, we have this deep sense of justice and fairness built into the fabric of our lives. And extending grace simply seems to be so utterly unfair. But make no mistake, God is not unfair with us. We may think he is, but he's not in the things that really matter in life. For example, he has provided us all with a way to come in right relationship with him through faith in Jesus Christ and to live, to live forever with him in heaven. It's the greatest gift that we can be given in this life. Like the workers in the vineyard, God treats us all fairly. However, even though God treats us all fairly in matters of the next life, because he is sovereign, he's not obligated to treat us all the same in this life. And so that sometimes creates tension within us because we find ourselves comparing ourselves with the life of others. And sometimes when we feel that God's favoring somebody else more than us or seems to be blessing someone else more than us, we begin to wonder about the fairness of God. We may even wonder about the goodness of God. And what really gets complicated is when it seems that God is specially blessing those who, from our perspective, are far less deserving of his blessing and grace than we are. We say, God, you know, I've given my life to you. I've served you all my life, and yet you're blessing my neighbor who doesn't even believe in you more than me. And it is in this sense that grace seems to be unfair. And yet here's the thing. We forget that we're all sinners. We all fall short of the glory and the perfection of God. In fact, 1 John 1.8 goes even further and says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth of God is not in us. Now, Rabbi Zacharias, he defines sin as violating the purpose for which we were created. When a car, for example, is used to kill people rather than transport people, the purpose of that car has been violated. And so clearly the murderer, the molester, has violated the purpose for which they were created. But so has the liar, the gossip, the slanderer. And you see, that rattles some of us because while we fully expect God to deal harshly with the molesters and the murderers, we often fail to realize that the sins that we consider so much less uh, significant are also a crime against a holy God and need to be paid for. In short, we're all guilty. 
We've all fallen short of the glory of God and his divine purpose for us. And what that means, folks, is we all need grace. We all need grace. The Bible says that God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. In other words, God loves to be outrageously gracious to those who are humble enough to admit that we're sinners, that we need God's grace, and he resists extending grace to those who are proud and self-righteous, who keep score and therefore think that they're better and more deserving of God's favor than others. Because they're trusting in their goodness in what they do rather than in the grace of God. The third truth we see here is this, uh, that God's grace is costly. Something we are inclined to overlook in this parable is that the owner was not obligated in any way to pay these workers more than they deserved. But he did so freely. But we need to remember it cost him far more than he would have had to pay. Grace is a gift. It's freely given but it doesn't come out of thin air. There is always a cost that someone has to pay. Let me explain it this way. My wife likes muscle cars. I didn't know that until more recently. A while back, one of our vehicles got hit from behind by another vehicle, and while our car was being repaired, our insurance company arranged for us to have a rental car, and they gave us a high-performance charger. Now, I know, and I knew, that the temptation of driving a car like that would be too much for me. <clears throat> I tried to be a good example, you see. And so I figured that I'd do the safe thing and let Gwen drive it. Bad decision. That car brought something out of her that I haven't seen before. <laughs> and it was scary. In fact, I seriously contemplated calling our insurance company to get extra coverage for her. She wouldn't let me go near her charger. I was in it only once. She was driving. I was praying. Okay, so let's get to the point here. Let's say that I got Gwen a muscle car for her birthday. It's only an illustration, Gwen. Don't even go there. Just an illustration. Now, let's say that on Monday, I take her new car out for a joyride, and I lose control and graze a pole and put a massive dent in her car. Now, if our marriage is going to remain strong, then someone is going to have to pay to repair the car and I can hear Gwen saying, I vote it be you. Well, I could pay for the damage, which would be the right and the just thing to do. But suppose that I didn't do that. Instead, suppose I just said I was sorry and asked Gwen to forgive me. Now, it is important to our marriage that we do this. However, me genuinely saying I'm sorry and Gwen genuinely forgiving me for wrecking her car won't make that dent go away. Someone still needs to pay to have that dent repaired. 
You know, I've had people ask me why Jesus had to die on the cross. I mean, why the blood? Why the brutal execution? I mean, God is God, isn't he? Why didn't he just make a declaration to the world, you're all forgiven? Well, it's for the same reason. Me saying I'm sorry and Gwen forgiving me doesn't fix the dent in the car. You see, because of our sin, we are spiritually broken, spiritually dented and wrecked, as it were. And if we're going to be redeemed and made spiritually alive again, in car terms, if we're going to be made roadworthy again, God's justice requires that our sins be paid for. Now, other people wonder, why can't I deal with my sins and my regrets by committing to being a better person going forward? Well, that would be like me you know, hoping that Gwen's car will be repaired by me committing to be the best driver in Calgary from now on. You see, I could resolve that from now on, I'm never going to speed. I'm not going to text or talk on the phone ever while driving. If someone cuts me off in traffic, tells me where to go, uses some creative sign language, I'm going to smile back and wave and say, God bless you too. But you see, here's the thing. Even if I win the best driver of the year award, it won't make the dent in Gwen's car go away. That dent still needs to be paid for. You see, folks, this is where every religion on the planet falls short outside of Christianity. Brian Clark says, it's believing that even though I crashed into the holiness of God and have made a massive wreck of things, if I just strive to do good going forward, if I just try to be a good person, jump, jump through the right hoops, perform the right rituals, somehow the dent will go away. That's religion. But you see, it doesn't work that way. The dent needs to be repaired, and someone has to pay for that. Now, of course, it's easy to understand how you can pay for repairing a dent in a car but in the spiritual realm, how do you adequately pay for our sins against a holy God and against other people? How does a person even begin to pay for a murder that he's committed? Or how do we compensate for the long-term effects of a lie or a slander or gossip or resentment? The reality is we're incapable of fixing these things in our strength. So God does an incredible thing. Rather than giving up on us, God gave up his most precious son, Jesus, who willingly came to earth and took our place, paid for our sins with his own blood on the cross, making it possible for us not only to be forgiven, but for our brokenness to be redeemed and for us to be made spiritually alive again with Jesus. Which is why we read that just before Jesus died on the cross, he cried out, it is finished. I have paid the price for man's sins once for all. 
Look at what Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 says. God made you. Now, I just want you to look at that verse and just kind of scan it and ask yourself, is there anything there that we do? Look what it says. God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Amen? Now, I know it sounds outrageous that, that, that God would love us so much to do such a thing. But that's the good news of Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday. When we, by faith, accept that free gift and we appropriate it to our lives, we find ourselves free, clear, and forgiven for our debt has been canceled. It has been wiped away. It's been nailed to the cross. God's grace is a gift. It seems unfair, and it is costly. Finally, God's grace must be received. The owner in this parable wanted to be outrageously generous to those who didn't deserve it. But he couldn't have done so unless they received the gift that he offered them. You see, if there is one catch, as it were, to God's grace, it is this. It must be received. And to receive it, your hands have to be open and they have to be empty. And the Christian term for that is repentance. Sincere repentance is the doorway to grace. Repentance is humbling yourself. It is releasing your grip on the counterfeit gods in your life. A certain relationship. A certain possession. Whatever counterfeit God there is, it's releasing it. The need to be in control. It's acknowledging your sin, your need for God's grace and receiving it by faith. My question is, what are you hanging on to? Who do you need to forgive? Who do you need to extend grace to? What counterfeit God do you need to release? In short, what is dividing your heart or getting in the way of you not only receiving but also fully living in the gift of grace that God has for you? I'll close with this. Max Licato tells of a time he sat next to a mentally challenged boy named Billy on an airline flight. Billy's opening line was one that makes every traveler jump with joy. He said, oh good, I'm glad you're sitting next to me. Sometimes I throw up. <laughs> Billy went on to say, I'm 14 and I'm going home to see my daddy. I can't wait to see him because he looks after me. I need someone to look after me because I get confused a lot. Billy was a little boy in a big body. Unashamed of his needs, he didn't let the flight attendant pass without reminding her, don't forget to look after me, because I get confused sometimes. 
When they brought food, he said, don't forget to look after me. Later, when they brought drinks, he said, don't forget to look out after me. Lakato writes, I honestly can't think of a time that Billy didn't remind the crew that he needed attention. On the other hand, Lakato says, the rest of us never asked for help. You see, we're grown up. We're sophisticated. We're independent. We're self-reliant. And you know, as I read this little article by Lakato, it dawned on me that Billy, though mentally challenged, had a significant advantage over most of us today. He understood grace. He knew what it was like to place himself totally in the care of someone else. While so many people will resist ever doing that. Because you see, in our culture, mature, intelligent, sophisticated people, they don't need other people. Least of all, God. Oh, don't get me wrong, they really do. Just that we like to pretend we don't. See, confession and surrender is an admission of need. And that's something that we really resist doing. Lakato writes, It occurred to me that Billy was the safest person on the flight. Had the plane encountered trouble, the flight attendants would have passed me by, he says, and gone straight to Billy. Why? Because he placed himself in the care of someone stronger. And I ask you, friend, have you? Have you placed yourself in the care of someone stronger? Spiritually speaking, we are broken. We are separated from God. We can't fix it. We can't. Jesus came. He died to pay for our sins and to fix our brokenness. He offers us a new and a full life, a life of true freedom and victory. But you have to get off that performance ladder. You need to let go of all these attempts to save yourself, to play the role of religion. And like a little child, it reaches up to daddy. With open hands, you need to surrender completely to God and receive his amazing grace by faith. So I'm wondering, have you placed yourself completely into his care by faith? You know, in 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul says, if Jesus is not alive, if he didn't rise from the dead, then our preaching is in vain. Then we're still in our sins and our faith is futile. If Jesus is not alive, it makes absolutely no sense to be a Christian or to believe a word that I've said in this message. But if Jesus is alive, and folks, the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus is profound, it's overwhelming. If Jesus is alive, then he is God as he claimed to be. It means the scriptures which he authored are true. His promises, his commands, his precepts and scriptures are right and true. It means that he is the way, the truth, and the life. If Jesus lives, it means that he loves us with 
an everlasting love, that he hears us, and that his grace that we've been talking about in this message is the real deal and is available not only to redeem us, but also to empower us daily to live a life of joy and peace and victory. My question in closing is, how convinced are you that Jesus is alive today? If you believe he lives, if you believe he lives, then live like you believe it. If Jesus lives, it makes no sense to be partially surrendered to him. It makes absolutely no logical sense to keep him at a safe, comfortable distance. Follow him with full devotion. Live every day with the awareness that he is with you. Wanting to help you, wanting to empower you and guide you to be his representative and to carry out the assignments that he gives you. If you're not convinced Jesus lives, you owe it to yourself and to your eternity to investigate the compelling evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You need to understand that what you decide about Jesus will radically impact not only this life, but your eternity. It's too important an issue to ignore, to leave for another day. I submit to you that there is only one source of hope that is absolutely, totally, irrevocably, completely reliable. That is my Jesus. No one will ever love you more than Jesus does. He died to prove how much he loves you and me. He rose again to prove that he's totally trustworthy and that he is who he said he is. Friends, I live for Jesus because he lives. Because he lives. I have no doubt he rose from the grave. I have sensed his presence in my life. I have witnessed his power at work, not only in and through my life, but in the lives of people around me and heard about his power through his church around the world. I have found that he is a rock upon which you can stand, a shelter, a fortress in times of trouble. He will never leave you or forsake you. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name, on Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground, all other ground, all other ground is sinking sand. just stand right now for a moment. Just take a moment, open our hands to him and just ask, Lord, what are you saying to me? What is it, Lord, you want me to do about it?
you want to know how to begin a relationship with Jesus, if you feel that the Spirit is kind of drawing you, you just feel something inside of you drawing you to the Lord, you know, talk to me, talk to some of the other pastors. Leave us a note. We'll call you during the week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for your love and for sending your precious Son to die for us to pay for our sins and to make it possible for us, Lord, to be redeemed, to be made spiritually alive again in Christ. We declare today that we serve a risen Savior and we just pray for anyone here, Lord, who say they believe that Jesus lives and yet are living like he's not. Oh, Lord, may today be the day where where they surrender all to you and live all out for you. And I also pray for those, Lord, who aren't sure where they stand with you. They will call out to you in faith right now. And they will ask you to forgive them of their regrets, of their sins, and invite you to invade their life. Knowing that the same power which raised you from the dead is available to them to live in freedom and victory today and to live forever with you in glory one day. For we pray it all. In the precious name of Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen and Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this message has impacted you. We'd like to challenge you to take it one step further and get connected. For any questions or prayer, please visit our website at cschurch.ca. You can also like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter 